So today as part of our podcast show, which is powered by Upside Global, we have the honor to interview Matt Robinson, a professor at sports management at University of Delaware. He's also running the international coaching program and has worked with major sports leagues and done research studies with the U.S. soccer and also worked with different sports and federations around the world. So Matt, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me, Julian. Great. So Matt, what I want to talk to you about today was first talk about your background and then uh, what you think are the do's and don'ts when it comes to training soccer teams. And then we'll talk about the differences that you've noticed working with teams in the U.S. and Europe. And then lastly, I'd love to take your take on the uh, U.S., uh, how uh, the U.S. soccer team will do at the next World Soccer Cup in Qatar. How does it sound? Sounds great. Sounds great. Great. So uh, why don't you tell us first, uh, talk about your background for the audience. Yeah, so um, I've I've been a professor now for over twenty five years, and about uh, it was about twenty years ago that I got involved with doing international work, um, and currently I'm in charge of an international coaching program that's funded by the International Olympic Committee's Olympic Solidarity Fund, mm-hmm. as well as the United States Olympic Committee, and it's directed towards coach development around the world. So. In that program over the past, uh, we've had, I guess, 14 classes. You know, we've worked with over 350 coaches from over 120 countries in 24 different sports. So really it's opened my eyes to sport in all other parts of the world, other cultures, other countries, developing nations versus uh, underdeveloped nations and some of the challenges yeah. and opportunities. And it's, it's been a great opportunity really to reflect upon the US environment in comparison to what's being done in other countries. And when it comes to soccer, right, uh, which federation or countries you think are the most advanced when it comes to player development, uh, training and all that? Would you say it's maybe, I'm just guessing, right? England, is it France? Uh, Who do you think it is? Well, you know, I think one of the biggest, there's a couple of things that that come into play that aren't even sport or soccer related is, you know, first you talk about macro variables um, and you start talking about, you know, not only GDP and population and so forth, but, you know, world governance indicators. We did a study taking a look at, you know, basically if a country's effective, meaning its government's effective, and the fact that often the government's very involved in sport in other countries, that's Mm going to impact how sport is in a country. So, of course, when you take a look at, you know, your traditional powers, you know, of your Germany's, your England's, your Brazil's, Argentina, you know, again, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's a head start there. I mean, the, you know, again, you know, in in Brazil, soccer is not a sport, it's a religion, Um, you know, and again, in Germany, you know, a similar type of thing where. And England too, right? England, I mean, soccer was born there. England, England was started. Yeah, exactly. And so when you take a look at the United States, really, you know, you had countries that had, you know, century head start on us. Um, that really, when you talk about yeah. the you know, United States soccer movement, you could claim that the first real generation was, you know, the, the 70s, um, you know, when there was kind of a push to, you know, bring soccer to mainstream in the United States. So, um, but yeah, when, when, you know, if you take a look at a Germany and what they did, and, and especially when they did, there's a great book called Das Reboot, you know, after they, I think they flamed out in the European Championships, and I guess it was the late 90s, early 2000s, yeah. that you know, they went back and reevaluated what they were doing and made some you know, significant changes that ultimately led to, you know, them winning a World Cup and, you know, putting them back right, you know, at the right. And, and, and what, what kind of changes have they done? You said, I don't remember when they won the World Cup, but what types of changes have they done? 
Well, I think the one, th the one thing they did was, you know, they developed these regional uh, regional centers of identification that it was, they kept elite players in their local clubs, mm -hmm. and but they they made, they had these regional centers that were staffed by, you know, federation people. And so players from clubs were invited into these sites, they're being evaluated, they're playing against better people, yeah. they invited the staffs to come and watch the training so they knew the understanding and the expectations of a national team, you mm -hmm. know, player. And they went back and took that into their club. I think the other thing that they did was that they began opening up um, in terms of who was allowed into the national player pool. Um, at that point, I believe there was a restriction on who could come into the national team. And I think you had to be a national born German citizen. That's and right. They that up with the immigrants coming in when you take. So a look I, I, yeah, to that point, I know Otil, the guy originally from Turkey, I mean, Turkey, right? Yep. Amazing, Ozil. amazing player. So people yep. like players like that were able to join a national team. That helps. Is yep. that what you're saying? And and where before they would have been denied, like Botang and, and like you yeah. said, yeah, Ozil was a great example. But yeah. that the core, you know, some of their best players that helped them win that World Cup probably wouldn't have been eligible for that team. Very so, true. But I but I think you know there's there's you know you always talk about the variables that are associated with I think I think. Um, Germany does an amazing job in the incorporation of sports sciences into what they're doing and their training, mm -hmm. the tracking that they're doing. Uh, they do an excellent job in terms of the development of their coaches uh, and the certification of their coaches. Um, there's amazing facilities. You know, it's kind of interesting that, you know, when you talk about facilities, you know, Germany, uh, the DFB has a headquarters and so forth, but, you know, they have amazing facilities around the, around the country. And what was great about them hosting the World Cup you know, they really benefited from that because they were able to modernize the facilities of a lot of their clubs mm -hmm. uh, in preparation, both training sites and the stadiums themselves to yeah. host that World Cup. But the true legacy was left after the fact, you know, them hosting that World Cup. That's very true. And, and you know, it reminds me because I'm from France, right? So if you look at judo, France is notorious for being very good in, in judo. <clears throat> but part of the reason is because in France, uh, every single city has a, uh, a judo, you know, uh, a judo facility. It's yeah. free. Uh, it's provided by the city. And that's why you've got, you know, be France became so good because, you know, you had judo uh, training uh, facilities in every single town and it was yeah. free. Um, so I think stuff like that, you're right. It's really, if it's driven by the government, then that makes a big difference, right? But, but, but you know, again, it's interesting, you know, with soccer in the US, you know, you compare it that soccer, you know, I, I always think about this. It's funny. Internationally, I'm viewed as a basketball guy. Domestically, I'm a soccer guy. But, you know, yeah. and, and I look back, you know, basketball in other countries, sometimes basketball is the third choice. You know, mm -hmm. in the United States, soccer still isn't that first choice. You're not getting the pick of the litter yeah. going into that sport. But then you talk about the culture. Like, I always think that our two best sports internationally in the United States are basketball and swimming. Mm -hmm. And we have swimming. just like, you know, you look at swimming, you know, uh, in traditional community, there's a pool and kids learn how to swim. And it's yeah. just, that, you know, swimming in a local swim, you know, in the summer months leads into a kid picking the sport up. Yeah. <clears throat> and similar like basketball that, you know, every gym has a basket in it. Every, you know, you, my neighborhood has, you know, there's, there's 15 baskets in the neighborhood, you know, mm -hmm. driveways for their kids. And yeah. that's a, that's a cultural, you know, that's the strength of the culture of the sport. I think you're right. Um, and if you had to kind of rank the best countries of federation in the world when you, for soccer, right? When it comes to player development training, what would be your top three? 
You know, it was interesting. We looked at, we did a study for U.S. soccer that we actually had prepared a report for FIFA of like kind of a best practices for, it was women's soccer. Yeah. So we really got to do a, dig, a deep dig. And, you know, the countries that really kind of stood out, and this was on the women's side, but I think, you know, it would be reflective of the men's. But um, like I said, Germany, Germany was outstanding. And yeah. I think France, you know, France has got a great, a great plan in place. And they've actually even improved further on the, on the women's side. Yeah. side of things. But there's some th those countries that, um, and again, because of macro variables, they're fighting an uphill battle, but they, they overcome it with the great job that they do in their player development. When you, when you look at like a Norway or a Sweden. I was going to say, yeah. That they, they overperform, you know, and it has a lot to do with, you know, their player development, um, you know, their coach development, you know, and, and how they're, how they're developing their players. And, you know, it's been neat to see that, you know, you go across the different websites of, of the, the federations and having meetings with them. You know, mm -hmm. Australia's got a great player development platform that's public. Um, you know, they, yeah. they all have their, you know, a lot of them are based on LTAD. A lot of them, there's different stages and so forth. But at least that there's a, a deliberate mindset of what you should be doing. And there's consistency in what's being done in each of the developmental stages. Uh, because again, you make a mistake at the, at the, at the, at the foundational stage, you know, you may never correct that mistake. So, yeah. um, but no, I think, like you said, you know, Germany has the resources or France has the resources. When you look at it, you know, in Norway, a Sweden, okay. Smaller countries that don't have as many, it doesn't have as large of a population. So they're being mm -hmm. much more efficient, but then you look at it, you know, again, looking at Brazil, Brazil benefits immensely from the culture, you know, and like you said, yeah. it's not, it's not a sport there. It's a religion. And, uh, and the Federation often benefits from that. You could often say United States benefits from the strength of the culture of basketball, you know, in, and how we perform internationally. And I think and, Brazil and, is very much like that. Yeah, you're right. Um, and, and we do actually work with uh, Brazilian soccer teams and, and so forth. Uh, what about England? Because England, they got to put up talent, right? The club do a pretty good job with that. You know, I think England, it's similar to Germany. I think England did a reboot and it's been and neat to see them, you know, do so well in the last World Cup. And actually yeah. their women's program is, is very strong as well. But I think England as well has, um, I think that again, they get into the mindset we're England. We, we know, you know, we know, you know, we know the game, mm -hmm. but I think that old closed mindset is, is being broken down. I think that when they brought began to bring in internationals into mm -hmm. the English Premier League, um, yeah, it's true. You know, that that kind of changed, you know, the changed the mindset of doing things has been a good thing for England. And yeah, so, and even uh, if, if you look at Arsenal, <coughs> I know when Arsene Wenger yeah. uh, became the head coach, right? So I remember players talking about back then, like you really changed the way they eat, the diet, the training. I mean, he came all the way from Japan back then, right? Because he was he was coaching a Japanese team, and the players were like, I, I, you know, they were used to drinking beers after the games, you know, and they they were shocked. But yeah. you know what? I think he, he really set a precedent. Yeah, for Arsenal, but also for other clubs, other teams in the Premier League too. Oh no, I think I think Winger was yes, he was extremely influential uh, from style of play to like you had said, the expectation of being a professional, uh, extension of career. Uh, the behavior of the players, you know, you know, all those things. And I think England's done a better job in terms of their development um, and emphasizing the development of the players. Uh, a lot yeah. of autonomy being given to the clubs to develop the players, but doing it, you know, doing it hopefully in the right way.
but uh, but yeah, England uh, England has really really changed in recent years, and again, their performance in the last World Cup, and I mean, there's still some people talking about them being favorites in in Qatar. I mean, every single World Cup, England is favorite, but you know, recently in the past World Cup, they kind of always you know fall short. Um, yeah, but it's it's tough. I mean, it, it's it's really tough. I think it's even harder to compete in the, the European Soccer Championship than the World Cup itself. Oh, it's, I, yeah. well, I think you know? the you know, I always say that you know I think the European I always think that the UEFA champions is is the true world champion that you know there's no yeah. restrictions on citizenship or anything like that. It's the two best teams from Europe playing, and that's where the best you know that's You're talking where the about the the, the Champions League. You're talking about the Champions yeah, League. The Champions yeah. League, yeah, yeah, the Champions yeah. League. Um, uh, but no, you know, it, it's interesting you say that, you know, there's, I don't know if you've read the book Soxonomic. No, I don't have, I haven't read it. No. It's, it's, they make a good point about it that, you know, with England going into the World Cup, you know, they play, you know, the, the you could argue and, uh, you know, we can have an argument over the, the top professional league in the world, but the English Premier League is just a, a brutal league. Plus you're playing Champions League yeah. games through the year. And you finish, and then you're jumping right back into uh, preparing for an, you know, you know, for a World Cup, and the majority of the English players are playing in England in that top level of. So they're washed out, like they're totally tired by the end yeah. of the Premier League season. Yeah. And but you're right. Um, I mean, I think the consensus in Europe is that the Premier League is the best, almost the best soccer league in the world, the toughest one. Um, but because there's also a lot of international players, right? The uh, England national, the, the players from England, uh, it's tough for them to play in their team in England, right? Yeah. So uh, because of that, and because of the fact, like you said, right? It, it's so exhausting to, to, at the end of the season, they're totally tired, right? Uh, same for the French players, right? Uh, you could argue that they, they've done poorly recently in the nation leagues, I think, because they were just totally exhausted. Yeah. Um, so well, it's you know it's it's interesting you're you're getting kind of a you know you're seeing this conflict between the private you know I call them multinational sport enterprises you know the which are the you know the English Premier League teams yeah. and then the 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 international sports structure that's based upon you know nation states that you know wait a minute I'm I'm getting paid over here or I'm a club owner over here yeah. And now you're at taking my player away. He may get hurt and be out for the rest of the season for me where I'm trying, you know, I'm, I'm, he's a, he generates revenue for me. But like you had said, I got to come over and play for the national team. And I know it's the honor and everything that goes along with mm -hmm. it. But, but just what you said, if England has, you know, it's 11 players have just all gone through, you know, a, a difficult English Premier League game and mm -hmm. you're a team that maybe only had one or two kids, one or two guys. Yeah. That played English Premier League. The rest maybe played in a, you know in their domestic league, not as challenging. Uh, so yeah, and it's it's all it takes is one game and you're out. You know of a you know bad performance and you're out. And I you're forget, out. And, yeah, and, yeah I, I think what you yeah. yeah I was just gonna right. say I, I forget if it was the World Cup or a European Championships where the Dutch, the Dutch played awful like their first game and it just they just looked exhausted and then I yeah. think they played okay the second game. By the third game they were amazing and they were out. And um, so, yeah, I think that has a lot to do with the, the 12 months preceding that, the, the tournament itself. I think it's, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's exhausting and, and it's taxing on the players. Um, so there's always, I think, a balance, right? A, a balance between, you know, not overtraining during the regular season and, yeah. you know, keeping some energy for the European Championship, for the World Cup, 
And, and but the clubs are so demanding because the clubs are the ones paying their salaries. So yep. they expect them to just play the best they can, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, it's very difficult, I think, for the players to, uh, to manage the expectation on both sides. Um, so, uh, but, uh, you know, go, going back to uh, soccer training, right? What do you think, because this is kind of your area, right? So what do you think are the do's and the don'ts, things not to do when it comes to training uh, soccer teams? What are the best practices, I would say? Well, you know, again, I always talk about, you know, what developmental stage are we talking about? you know, um, in do's and don'ts of training and so forth. I, I just think one of the, the big the big weaknesses in the U.S. is that, you know, in our developmental stages, we put such an emphasis on winning over player yeah. development. All right. and, and, and not to say that winning is not important, but it's, you know, winning at the sake of player development. And so I think, you know, training – putting players in that the ability that they number one at the youngest age that they fall in love with the game. I mean, I think mm -hmm. it's one of the things you see today is uh, that a lot of players who don't love the game, they're, they're playing it because they have to versus because I love to. Yeah. And then I think the, the second, the second is then introducing intensity to the training and making the training so that the games are, you know, that are easy. Mm -hmm. It was interesting. We did a, did a training session with an FA guy and I never really thought about this, but he had showed it and basically said that, you know, the majority of the time an offensive player is in a situation of numerical, you know, disadvantage in a game. It's always mm -hmm. a one v two situation. And in practice, we're always putting our players in the two V one situation. And so he said, you know, make training that you flip that. And so I think that's the other part of it is that, you know, putting players under pressure in training so that it, you know, that the game, mm -hmm. the game becomes easier. And so, but I, but I think, you know, the, the idea of in the United States, I think one of the things we have too, the, the, the criticism of overcoaching and then, you know, are you really coaching? Are you just running drills? Or are you able to really develop the players? But I think um, at the younger developmental stage in the United States, it's, you know, again, the idea of developing the players and not just focusing on these results. The results matter at some point, but not when they're at, you know, 10 and 12 years old. It should be more about them developing as players and improving themselves and then raising the level of the game, you know, through. But, yeah, but I think, yeah, I think the big thing too, but, you know, I think the thing that's been great in the United States and, and with the MLS, we've done a great job of replicating that, you know, we're only playing one or two games a week, you know, yeah. you know, and that's, you know, we, I know we talked about, you know, the difference between the college games. I mean, it's crazy in college soccer when teams are playing three games in a week. Three games you know, a week. Like, wow. Yeah, I mean, you get, it's not uncommon to go, uh, you know, a Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, or a Saturday. I mean, gosh, I remember playing Saturday, Tuesday, Thursday, and coming back and playing on a Sunday. So like being an week. NBA team on the road or something. Yeah, and it's, you know, so the recovery aspect of that and oh, yeah. are, are players really developing? And you talk to college coaches, you know, about – you know, with the way that the schedule was set up yeah. is that they never really get to train um, because you're always in a taper, you yeah. know, taper, recover, taper, compete, recover, mm -hmm. um, you know, in season. So I think the MLS is great that they've done a great job that it, it is about, you know, you know, training, training and getting better through the years and it's better for the development of the players. Yeah, and, I, and, and what you said, you know, is so we work with NBA teams, right? And when we talk to NBA team, they always keep telling us, for us, it's all about recovery because we've got, we might be on the road and we might be coming back and, you know, getting into a new city at two or three o'clock in the morning. So yeah. it's all about, hey, 
clock is ticking, right? How do I make sure my guy is, is recovered, is, you know, he slept enough? It's, it's like, it's always a challenge, right? Yeah. So I think uh, but what you said for college sports, for soccer, you know, it's not like it's the same thing too. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's absolutely crazy. Our national championship in, for college soccer is you play a game on Friday night and then yeah. you have to turn around and play on Sunday for the championship. Yeah, it's just, you know, and, and there was a proposal that was put forth uh, several years ago in, for college to basically make soccer a, you know, a year-long sport. Mm-hmm. And it would be stretching out the season. You would take a break, you know, in and around January, February, and come back, you know, March and finish out the season. But it would be, you know, one, maybe, you know, maybe two games a week once in a while. But, um, you know, going that route. But, um but no, it's you know, college is it's it, it's it's an interesting challenge for college coaches. Yeah, but I, you know, talking about college, I think you know, growing up in in France and Europe, I think the um, uh, U.S. college sports is massive compared uh-huh. to uh, Europe. Because in Europe, yeah, we do have universities, but we don't have like those uh, you know top universities, Notre Dame. Stanford, all those big uh, college sports teams. It's a religion over here. Yeah. Like, you know, because when I, I didn't grow up in this country, so I feel like a lot of people growing up, they're very attached to their college team. But I cannot relate to that because I didn't grow up here. Yeah. Uh, but it's here, it's a big deal. And sometimes they care more about the college college teams and college leagues than professional leagues, M- NBA, yeah. MLS, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's... No, it's, you know, and again, it's a, it's a, it's a strong culture. Um, you know, it's aspirational. It's a great deal. I mean, you know, you have a lot of parents and athletes whose aspiration is to, to get a college scholarship. You think about to get yeah. a, you know, a, you know, a, maybe a $200,000 education for free yeah. and, and all you're doing is playing your sport. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good proposition. And it it's is. interesting how, you know, you know, it's really interesting right now, the number of international players that are coming to the United States now uh, that are populating the U.S. Uh, US rosters. And I mean, yeah, if you value look at basketball, right? Basketball, I mean, like France, for example, right? <laughs> uh, because, since Tony Parker, right? A lot of the young basketball players, they go through the U.S. universities and they make it to the NBA that way, right? Um, <laughs> You know, I, I always thought this about Tony Parker. You talk about the the influence of media and so forth, but you know, the Dream Team in 1992, yeah, um, you know, played in the Olympic Games, and and I still believe Tony Parker should have been a been a midfielder on those great French teams with Zidane and Henri. Yeah, but he up a basketball instead. I mean, he was a world class athlete, but chose basketball. You know, and he was. And then I read an article where he said he goes, "Yeah, I fell in love with basketball because of the Dream Team." But uh, I always yeah. thought he should have been—he should have been one of those, that, that, those great French teams, um, yeah. and won a couple of World Cups. I mean, I, yeah. So I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, right? So uh, when it comes to soccer, the beauty of France is that, I mean, quite frankly, if you look at the suburb of Paris, outside of Paris, I mean, the pool of talent, anywhere from Mbappe, Pogba, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's ridiculous because yeah. they all play against each other. You know, every weekend, every week. So, yeah. uh, and guess what? All the biggest soccer teams in the world—they're Bayern Munich and Chelsea and Arsenal. What did what did they do? They go and poach those players, right? Right mm-hmm. off those—I uh, mean, the French academies, quite frankly, uh, especially like PSG. PSG is unable to keep their young talents most of the time, and yeah. they end up signing up with Bayern Munich or you know other Premier League clubs. 
which is unfortunate, I think, uh, because uh, the, the pool of talent is just amazing uh, down there. And I think it's also interesting when, you know, again, when you take a look at, you know, tapping into the, uh, to the migrant community, I mean, you know, with France, if you look at Drogba, yeah. you know, you know, Drogba, Ivory Coast, but, you know, and again, you know, does Drogba become Drogba if he stays in the Ivory Coast or does Drogba become Drogba because he moves to France? Probably not, probably not. Yeah. I think the, the French, he made it pretty late, right? Yeah. Uh, when he played for like Guingamp and then he went to Marseille, I mean, he, he was like late, yeah. like, like late 20s, you know? Um, well, I think, you know, with the, the globalization of sport that, the, again, it's, you know, the, the, the African nations, I mean, I don't know if it's a good thing or bad thing when you see their, their best talent being drawn away. And it's the same thing in South America. I mean, you know, literally in, you know, being in Brazil, there's literally soccer factories where they're, you know, bringing the kids in from the, you know, from yeah. the, uh, from the ghettos or the favelas and, yeah. you know, taking them in and if they develop them enough, then they sell them, you know, and it was worth the investment. Um, but, you know, cause it's always interesting. I mean, to find that in Brazil, you know, their, their best players aren't playing in Brazil. Their best players are all overseas. They do. You're um, right. And, and yeah. I, I read a statistic saying that Brazil is the number one country when it comes to exporting players internationally. Mm -hmm. And like you yeah. said, where do they go? And their dreams, I think their dream is to play in Europe. Yeah. Uh, you know, anywhere from like Vinicius who played for Real Madrid, uh, Rodrigo also played for Real Madrid, uh, Ronaldinho back then, Ronaldo. I mean, all those guys, uh, I think, and, and you make they make more, way more money in Europe too. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, um, yeah, very true. So, I think it's interesting. So, uh, and I think you touched on that a little bit. So, but if you had to summarize, what differences have you noticed working with teams in the US and Europe? Any major differences? culturally or the way they, they they train the way they approach a game you know i think one of the the biggest things you know in in terms i i think that we're emulating what we see around the world in the united states i mean again you know we're a melting pot country yeah. we have so many different cultures we we could play so many different ways we've had different coaches who come in and bring different philosophies you know philosophies on how they train you know from you know, we had an American-centric approach with Bruce Arena, and then when, yeah. um, you know, when uh, Klinsman came in, and you know, he had his perspective the German way. Very uh, true. You know, and Bradley, and, and so, you know, it's that it's almost every time we change a coach, we change a, a way that we're going to play. Mm -hmm. um, but I, but I, like I said, I, I, you know, it's interesting when we did that study of looking at it that you know how much autonomy was being given you know, in the development, at the developmental stages, let, you know, let the players be. And then the, again, do you, do you tell someone you're going to be a central midfielder or a, mm -hmm. wing, you know, early on because you're going to play on the national team in that position, or do you, you, you adjust that player when you bring him into that national team pool, things like that. So I think it's really interesting in that consistency, but like when you say training, I think I look at one, it being, you know, your professional teams and that the training in and around a professional season. And then the other is that I look at it, you know, your preparation of your national team programs mm -hmm. uh, and, and what you're doing. Um, but I, but I, the other thing, I always think it's kind of interesting. I had a great conversation uh, with someone from U.S. soccer about this, that, you know, how important is it to win, you know, the, the, the under the under 19s or the under 18 championships? Mm -hmm. If your ultimate goal is to win the seniors, yeah, 
Um, and is your best player at under 18 going to be your best player at your senior league? Not uh, always. Kind of, I mean, I mean, it's funny, you know, when you talk about like, I believe like someone like, I believe Harry Keane was like late, late view development, but on the women's yeah. side, Alex Morgan wasn't even in a national team pool until wow. she was in college. And then somebody said, what, you know, what, what happened here? Why wasn't this kid identified? And so I think it's really interesting where you put your resources in, in the player development and you know, what are knowing the metrics that you're using to determine who you think your, your best players are going to be uh, later, you know, later on. But, uh, but like you had said, I think, wow, what a challenge to be in England, France, Germany, that the, 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 the players you have to choose from to bring into your national team oh, yeah. versus mm -hmm. the United States. I mean, I, I always think with the United States, I mean, the more that we, populate our, our starting 11 in our national team that are players that are competing and excelling internationally that are in our starting 11 the more chance more realistic it is for us to win a world cup well you know it, it's very i mean in 1998 france won the, its first world cup part of it is because to you like you said our best players play for the best teams in the world they didn't play in france they play for juventus they play for real madrid they play for ac milan right and but now I'm seeing the same thing in the U.S. Because in the U.S. squad, the soccer team, your players are playing for Juventus, Barcelona, Chelsea Football Club, right? Yeah. All those top clubs. So, but, and so, so it's the same thing also with the other big uh, nations, right? But yeah. for the U.S., I think for the U.S., this is the first time in the history of U.S. soccer that you've got those players playing in the, some of the best clubs in the world. So yeah. in theory, hey, you got a higher chance to, to, go, to go pretty far. Too, yeah, right? yeah. Um, and, and again, you know, the, the level of play, I, I thought it was a great thing with with Bale coming over. I always said about the MLS that, yeah. you know, that it's it's been a, a landing point for people at the end of their career. I said that the, the you'll know the MLS is is truly a legitimate league when players are coming in their in their prime. Now, Bale, yeah. I think, is on the tail end, but not completely done. Yeah. But I think, you know, that's a, you know, again, to be able to say, and we're, you know, that the MLS becomes a first choice. We're able to pay the money for the, mm -hmm. bring the top players in and so forth. But I think it's always an interesting discussion in the U S when we put together a national team roster of, well, is it going to be all internationals? And is that a slate to the MLS? Yeah. It uh, has some MLS players or the MLS players are the guys that just can't get international contracts. But, um, but I agree when you see the, the, you know, the players that are coming back, getting called back for our, for our, you know, for our, uh, you know, qualifying games and where they're coming from, yeah. that's a statement about what we're doing. And that means we're doing a better job developmentally, you know, um, in developing the players that are getting, getting identified to go overseas yeah. you know, at a younger age. I mean, that, that's, that's a, that's a great statement, you know. And, 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 and I think the, the, the fact that those guys are playing overseas in the best teams in the world, that really inspire and I help the other guys playing yeah. the MLS to train better, play better, and they have to set, you know, raise the bar too, right? So, um, but I also I think, think that if, if I'm an international scout for Real Madrid or AC Milan, I have a different perception on US soccer and the players now. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think I heard this interesting from a scout. They were saying that um, the, what they like about the American player is that they're mentally mature, socially mature. Yeah. They're going to be, they're going to be able to adjust to a different culture. Some of them have already traveled internationally. 
Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's a, it's an easier transition for them. But then they say that I think you go back to this of them having the mindset. It's it's all or nothing. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is it. Um, because, again, the complaint against a lot of times against the American players that they're coming from an upper middle class background. Yeah. Hey, if it doesn't work out, I got a college degree. I'll go be an investment banker um, yeah. versus the mindset of somebody coming from an England working class working class background saying, hey, if I don't make it in soccer, I'm, I'm in a factory. I mean, um, and that mindset of, of showing up every day and fighting for your job. <clears throat> I mean, that's the thing that, that we need to have. And I think that's, you know, I like that about a generation of players we had. The guy that I used to like that, you know, Clint Dempsey, uh, who played mm-hmm. for the U.S. back there, it just he just had that attitude that I'm not taking anything off of anybody. And I think that part of the attitude when we had the developmental academy down in Bradenton, that they brought the best in and then you fought every day to stay there and it created a mindset. And I think that generation of players, they had you know great showings, you know, in, in the World Cup, that it was a mindset of, you know, kill or be killed. So uh, and that's that's what it takes to compete at the highest level. I think you're, you're absolutely right. But I also think that, you know, I live in this country for 20 years and the U.S. mindset, the culture which might sound sometimes as arrogant, they have this mindset of, you know what, uh, in their mind, they're going to win, right? Yeah. They may not be the best guys, the best team, but they, on paper, they think they're going to go all the way. That's true for yeah. soccer, you know, for basketball, for football, for, uh, you know, the, those tough sports, but it's also true for soccer, right? On paper, in their mind, that's the biggest strength of, of, of U.S. soccer, I think, is the mentality of being born and raised in the U.S., that yeah. you can do anything you want in this life, or you can go all the way. Um, you know, I, I use a, I use these cultural variables again when I I, I do this uh, do the research of taking a look at you know non non sport variables that impact sport performance. Yeah. But there's a there's a cultural variables that have been defined. A guy's name is Gert Hofstede, and it, it's kind of he tried to quantify culture. You know, culture yeah. is like he defined it as how how countries wired, and he and he came across and the one one area is called power distance. And mm-hmm. it's the degree of society accept inequality. And the Americans, we have very low, meaning that we we don't accept it. You know, we've done it, whether it be gender rights, race rights, you know, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, that we stand up against it and we challenge authority. And it's kind of what you had said that no, I'm I'm not, you know, I expect to win. And then we have a very individualistic mindset. Yeah. That it's about me, um, you know, that I expect it. And they have very low risk avoidance. I'm the heck with risk. We're, well, let's roll the dice. You know, let's go for it. But I, I think you're right. And, you know, you got to love that American mindset. But I think that, you know, it was funny thinking, and I was guilty of it too, back like in the 90s of thinking, we're going to send a bunch of college players over to Italy, you know, in 1990, yeah. won a World Cup. And just being so naive of, you know, how far behind we were than the rest of the world. Yeah. And, then realizing that it wasn't our senior national team is we had to go back to the base and we had to start doing things better with the youngest generation and Mm -hmm. develop that. And then, and then continue that, you know, continue that through. And that's how we're going to remain, you know, consistently in the top, you know, top of the world. And I think you've done that, right? If you look at this generation, this new team, I mean, that's a huge, big, that's a big step right there. I, Um, I think, you know, I hate to say it, but it was a shame not to qualify for Russia, but I, I do think it was a good thing for us. It was a, you know, it was a wake up call and yeah. it was, and it really made us really think what we were doing. 
And, you know, and again, I think the other thing in soccer, I mean, everybody talks about our participation numbers and everything like that. But at the end of the day, we're only talking about 1% of our players, you know, that are truly the elite players that are going to represent us, you know, play professionally, represent us internationally. Yeah. And that we need to separate those players out and, you know, and work with them and, you know, and identify them as, you know, if you can identify them as soon as possible, that that's where the efforts are in. Because again, being good and winning a World Cup are two different conversations, you know. Well, I mean, and, that's a you. That's a huge step. I mean, you know, on, yeah. Being and, good, and, you know, being good. You're talking about Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, France, yeah. but winning it—that's a whole different level. And, and luck, luck comes into it. You got to be lucky. You got to, yeah. you know, there's so many factors coming into this. Yeah, um, and and like you said, you know, the American mindset is like. Yeah, it's easy. We'll, you know, we'll figure this thing out and we'll, we'll do it. And it's like, no, it's, you're, it's a, it's a process, you know, it, again, it's not evolution. It's re, It's not revolution. It's going to be an evolution. And I'd like yeah. to think that, you know, really I was in the first wave of soccer. I was one of those seventies kids that was, you know, the, the odd kid out that, you know, was playing soccer instead of football. And I look at it, we're 50 years in. And so the culture, you know, now I'm the old guy in the soccer community and so to see where it was and where it is now mm -hmm. is amazing, you know, and there's been some great people that made it happen. A guy like Hank Steinbrecher, you know, secretary general that had the vision, you know, for the MLS yeah. and had the vision, you know, that the vision of hosting the 94 World Cup, you know, the, the significance of the, 90, uh, the 94 World Cup on U.S. soccer has is, is been huge in terms of, you know, the, 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 the foundation, the money was left afterwards to, to yeah. grow the game. Um, and so, you know, to see the professional leagues, to see the stadiums, I mean, what were up to 28 teams, yeah. all with their own stadiums, uh, filled They were all stadiums. packed. I mean, I remember the stadium was the biggest stadiums in the world. Like, you know, you have like 70, 80,000 people to watch the soccer game. You don't even get to see that in Europe sometimes. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. I wrote a great, I wrote an article about that, just talking about that, you know, that they used, it was a bunch of guys. I mean, there was guys that took, you know, took lines of credit out on their homes Wow. To host that World Cup. And the original plan for that World Cup, they were going to hold them in like small college stadiums and stuff. And then they said, yeah. no, man, we're using NFL stadiums. Yeah. We're blowing this thing out. And they did. And there's where the American mindset, the American entrepreneurism paid off. Yeah. And we pulled off the most successful World Cup at that time that's yeah. become the model for others. But the fact that we had the foresight to be putting money away to develop the game and to see where it is now. I mean, right now, you know, there's major league, there's major league soccer teams outdrawing major league baseball teams. Wow. Which is, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, and that you're talking about men's soccer, but women's soccer with the uh, NSWL, it's growing like crazy too. Yeah. And you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's interesting. The study that we did uh, was initiated by Anson Dorrance, the 21, 20 national championships down at uh, North Carolina. Yeah. They're saying hey, the world's catching up to us on the women's side. And he goes, what, you know, what do we need to do to stay there? And yeah. it's kind of interesting. We did a study and the ultimate, the, the findings of the study was where our gap was, what we needed to do was we had to sustain a professional league yeah. for our players after college so that they continue to get pushed. Yeah. Um, and you have these players coming out of college that weren't ready for the national team, but what are they supposed to do? So um, the, the women's league was established for those players <coughs> to continue to play up play against better competition but i think what's also been great is how you know the the france england 
you know, Germany all have supported their women's leagues. They now yeah. American players, and some of them are going overseas. Uh, well, and, 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 and two things I would say that really, um, that's a great thing, I think, for women's soccer is that now the women's soccer team is getting equal pay yep. with the, U, the U.S. men's soccer team. And, and I was just reading this week, there was one, there was a game from the Angel FC, the, the, the women's soccer team in, in, in L.A. They yeah. had uh, more viewers. I think it was like 400,000 people who watched the game, one game, more viewers than an MLS team. Yeah. So that yeah. tells you a lot, right? Yeah. No, um, it's, hey, you know, and, and again, soccer is not going anywhere. I mean, it's in uh, baseball, you know, like I said, it was always, you know, viewed baseball owned the summer. But now it's like I said, I know in Philadelphia, you know, I know both the, the people who run the Philadelphia franchise, soccer franchise, and the baseball franchise, the baseball franchise is, yeah, we've, you know, we've, we've lost. And, you know, I think what the MLS did was great is that they took a core group of passionate fans. Yeah. And blew it. They didn't yeah. compromise the game. Now, I remember when the MLS first came out and they had, you know, shootouts and, you know, all, you know, it was kind of Americanizing the game. Yeah. Look, my father was never going to become a soccer fan. Mm -hmm. So why compromise that where let's keep the game true. The people who truly know the game aren't, aren't going to be turned off by it. And so seeing the MLS being run like a, you know, the European leagues and so forth, as far as the rules, mm -hmm. you, know, the, you know, everything like that, it, the soccer fan appreciates that. And so um, they've grown that core group. And again, it's a great demographic. You know, yeah. I remember talking to the, um, the, the guy who started the Philadelphia Union was saying there was a, a group called the Sons of Ben that was the support group, the petition group and everything to get an, an MLS team. Mm -hmm. He went to go meet them. <clears throat> and he thought it was going to be, they, they sounded like this rowdy group of, you know, hooligans and everything like that. He got there and it was young stockbrokers, lawyers, you know, educators, business people. They were the youth soccer players who were dying to have a soccer team in the, in the area. And he goes, mm. they had this unbelievable demographic. And yeah. so, you know, the Philadelphia union fan base is not only it's large, but it's a great demographic as far as sponsorship and so forth is concerned. Yeah. I agree with you. Uh, and I, we actually work with uh, the unions, the Philadelphia unions. I uh, was supposed to be there a, a few months ago and visit the facility. But the one thing I would say from a technology standpoint and the performance staff, medical staff, because I work with teams in overseas in Europe, Premier League, Liga, and you know, and so forth, and then I work with lots of MLS teams. I can I, my perspective is that the MLS teams and the performance staff of those MLS teams are just as advanced, if not more advanced, in some occasions. When you look at the technology that they use to yeah. prevent injuries, like GPS systems, AMS systems, cardio um, uh, sensor technology. Honestly, the, the the MLS teams and the performance staff. The stuff that they use, sometimes they're even more advanced than European yeah. teams. No, um, I, I would agree. I, very forward thinking. Um, uh, there's a there's a guy. It's, it's a great guy. He's now with the Austin team, Dr. Dave Tenney. And Dave yeah. was with Sounders. And then Dave went to the Orlando Magic. They recruited him into yeah. basketball. And he's the one that said, this basketball thing is crazy. Trying to, you know, trying to develop a periodization plan around an NBA season is absolutely yeah. crazy. And went back to Austin, and they're having great success down there. But no, it's um, and they they understand the importance. It's an important variable associated with your success. You know, and Dave is kind of a pioneer. I mean, Dave has been kind of had that vision. Uh, he's kind yeah. of a unique guy, right? Uh, oh, Dave's amazing, amazing individual. Yeah. Uh, so last question. I know we're running out of time, but 
Okay. How well do you think the U.S. soccer team is going to do, the men's soccer team, at the Qatar World Cup? Do you think they can go to the quarterfinals? How far do you think they can go? Well, you know, I, I really think that you always said benchmarks are where we are. And I think at one point for the United States, it was an accomplishment to qualify. Yeah. And then, the, you know, hey, we're there. But now I think the expectation is for us to get out of group play. Yes. Um, and and then, like you said, you know, I, I just what you had said earlier about luck and everything else that goes into it. But I think, you know, once you get to quarterfinals at that point, the, the, all the teams, it's, you know, any on any given day. It's wide open. Know, I mean. Yeah, it's wide open. So I think if, you know, if the U.S. could get to the quarterfinals, that would be a, a huge accomplishment at that point. And like I, think the guys, I think the U.S. reached the quarterfinals. I, I forgot which World Cup, but you guys have done that before. Yeah, um, I mean, gosh, we, we lost to Germany in, uh, in, uh, in South Korea. I think that was a quarterfinal match, if I remember correctly. And yes. that was a great match. And then we lost to, uh, lost to Portugal in South Africa. But that's so, huge, right? Quarterfinals yep. for for a nation like like uh, the U.S. to have yep. done it, you know, I guess twice. That shows that there's there's a lot of progress that have been made, right? It's like I said, you know, and again, you know, you know, in Germany, you know, in Germany and Argentina, uh, you know, uh, Brazil and England, not winning, you know, winning is the, is is expected. The expectation. So not yes. winning is is a disappointing World Cup. Yeah. And so we're not there yet to have that expectation. But I think to say that, hey, if we don't get to the quarterfinals, then, hey, we underperformed. Is, is kind so that's of, a big that, statement already. That's, that means that, you know, you raised the bar already for yourself. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think we, 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 deserve, we, we owe it to ourselves to raise that bar, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of what we've done, what we've invested, um, you know, where our, where our players are playing and everything like that. So I think there's an expectation that that's, that bar is – yeah, let's let's put that bar. Let's we got to work to hit that bar. So I, I think that's a bar that's worth you know shooting for. Yeah, that makes and sense. I always think, like you said, you you know you get into that 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 final that final you know final four or final eight, then you've you know the and then it's anybody's anybody can win it. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I look, I mean, the, the the best teams can lose. Brazil, yeah. Germany, France. I mean, France got knocked out by Switzerland. Yeah, and the last European Championship, they were three one. I think they were up three one and we lost. Yeah. Oh boy. So, I remember that. Yeah. You yeah. know, ten minutes left. We lost. So but, but now, now how's France how's France gonna be? I think France is I mean, on paper, we should go all the way. I yeah. have, you know, with the talent and the, the players we have. I mean, you know, uh anywhere from Mpape to Griezmann to uh, Benzema. I mean, look, on paper we have one maybe one of the best teams in the world. Yeah. Um but there's so many variables, right? Luck, uh, VAR, you know, technology VAR can, you know, kick us out for yeah. one mistake that our our defenseman is going to make. So, yeah. Uh, but we could be lucky, right? Yeah. Like the, the last World Cup in 2018 and go all the way, you know, beating uh, Argentina and, uh, you know, all those big clubs, big teams. So I, I would expect them to go all the way. And I think they're their favorite. If you look at, I look at the, 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 the odds, and France was number one as of today. But yeah. because of the way that we played in the last European Championship in the Nation League when we lost recently, I don't, you know, I think, which I think is a good thing. It's a good thing that France did poorly in the Nations League because they're yeah. going to go out there in this competition very hungry. Yeah. And, and guys like Mpape or Benzema are going to want to show the world that they can win this thing. Yeah. 
So yeah. I think that's a good thing. And I think they'll be very, very willing to show the world that, hey, they're still number one. Um, I, you know what I think is going to be interesting too is that I just thought about this. We were talking about it earlier, but you know, the impact of the game of it being played, you know, there in November as opposed to June, where you know, where yeah. players are are they as beaten down? I know they're gonna be coming out of the season right, you know, right out of season into it, but it's they've been only in for you know, in for what, three months. So yeah. I think that's gonna be kind of interesting. So I'll be interesting how that's how that's gonna impact things. And also one thing I would to... say though, uh, <coughs> right. Uh, it's interesting that they're doing November. The one thing to remember, and I talked to some soccer, international soccer teams about this, the games are going to be played at 10 p.m. at night, 10 p.m. in Qatar. The problem is that the players are going to go to bed really late. Yeah. And the recovery is going to be very critical and sleep management. And I think that some teams might struggle because of that. Yeah. Um, that's why some teams are being very proactive to try to find ways to, you know, in, to to uh, prevent any sleeping issues because of yeah. the fact that the game's going to be very late. So, uh, and then, you know, uh, yes, all the, 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 the game's going to be uh, with the AC, right? The stadium's going to be totally closed. Uh, it's not going to be a, a crazy heat, which, which is good, right? But, yeah. um, uh, you know, there's going to be factors, right, impacting the game, I think. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting, that's for sure. That's going to be interesting. So, uh, so look, we we at the end of the conversation, but I want to thank you for for your time today. It was a great conversation to get your perspective. So, uh, yeah. thank you very much. No, thank you, Jillian. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. Bye bye.